0: Even just for personal property, if we're you know, just going in to put, a, put the fire out and save someone's possession, three and a half minutes of standing in the front yard and watching your house burn down while the fire department is trying to figure out how to get water out of the truck is an eternity. This is Code Three, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott.
1: That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic you need in about 20 minutes. I'm back after a bit of a hiatus, so let's get started. As a firefighter, you've probably developed some strong opinions on at least a few topics. Some people call them the hill you're willing to die on. But no matter what you call them, you need to pick your battles when it comes to spouting off about these points of view. My guest today wrote an article about his experiences fighting the smoothbore versus fog nozzle debate. He finally realized years later that he wasn't going to change people's minds. And more importantly, he didn't need to. Water will get on the fire either way. That's when he decided to start thinking about issues that do have an impact. Things that maybe should be changed for a good reason. Philip Clark works as a full-time firefighter in Lenore, North Carolina. He's also part-time with the Edkin Valley Fire Department. Phil joined the fire service in 2002 as a volunteer, and he's worked for several volunteer and combination departments since that time. And Phil Clark joins me now. Welcome to Code 3, Phil. Well,
0: thank you, Scott. It's good to be here.
1: It's great to have you. So you wrote an article for the FireRescue1.com website. You title it Three Things More Important Than Smoothbore Versus Fog Nozzle Debate." What do you mean by that title? Well,
0: I think that the truth of the matter is, is that no matter how long we fight back and forth with it, that we won't ever settle that debate. Um, I think that a lot of it, a lot of that comes down to how you were trained and how you came up in the fire service. If you came up using a fog pattern or a fog nozzle, you're going to always think it's better. If you came up using smooth bore, you're going to always think that's better. Uh, I just, in my six years that I've made that battle, uh, I never did find that I made any progress making anyone a converter (laughs) or converting anyone to Believing that smoothbore was better than fog or, or, or vice versa.
1: So, you're saying that what nozzle you're using is not the most important topic in firefighting that we should be debating?
0: Well, I think that it is an, an important topic, but I think that it doesn't matter what nozzle we're using if we can't effectively deploy a hose line or we can't effectively get in there and, and you know, put the fire out. I think that. We focus so much on the things that we aren't going to change overnight, like fog nozzle versus smoothbore, that we lose sight of the things that we can change by more training and, and putting in the reps and sets to have a better
1: outcome. Now, in that article, you offered three better debate issues that are generally decided by the, that's the way we've always done in school of thought. So how did you come up with those three ideas for things that are are better suited for debates?
0: Well, it it really came from me kind of beating my head against the side of a wall uh, about the the fog nozzle versus smoothbore debate. Uh, I was in charge of training for the volunteer department I was on at the time, and I realized that after I had been going back and forth and back and forth with the fog nozzle smoothbore thing, that... We had a fire one night and I realized that we ran into some problems that were very easily correctable as far as deploying the hose line and things of that nature. And it dawned on me that I've spent all this time trying to prove my point and be right about what nozzle we're using when I should have been focusing more on making sure that we were deploying the hose line effectively, putting it in service and get water on the fire in a a timely manner that we were operating cohesively as, as a unit with our crew that uh, you didn't have one guy putting his face piece on in the back of the truck on the way to the fire. And then one guy doing it at the front door. And, you know, so that when, when we got to, to the scene of the fire and we were getting ready to go inside, we operated collectively as a unit. And then the last one, as far as things that should be going on in rehab is that, as a, I've been a paramedic since 2012, and I realized that I see a lot of firefighters after a fire. We come out, we take our coats off, we take our air packs off, and we just kind of sit down in the front yard. And if some, nobody makes us go get checked out and recover appropriately, that we don't do it. The, the crew uh, integrity just goes right out the window at that point. So that's really where those three ideas came from was just the idea of things that I had seen in with my own eyes, of things that we were struggling with and nobody seemed to really be addressing.
1: Now, the first alternative idea you suggested was the argument of when and where to mask up. What are the two or more sides to this argument?
0: So the two main thoughts that I've heard from that are you either mask up in the back of the truck on the way to the fire, or you put your mask on you know, in the front yard or at the front door, right before you make entry. I've heard pros and cons to both in In the article I, I wrote. I talk about the, the, the pros of doing it in the back of the truck. You know, you, that means that when you get there to the scene, you're ready to go. You don't have to take time in the yard to put it on and things of that nature. But the, the drawback to that is that you limit your visibility, right? You, you, you only can see what you're allowed, what you're able to see with the mask on, um,
1: it also limits your ability to hear because a lot of firefighters wear headsets with microphones that are wired to the engine. So they're going to get that tangled up with their, with their air.
0: Absolutely. I am not a mask on in the back of the, of the truck. I think that there are certain circumstances where it could be beneficial. You know, if you're responding to something and you have a confirmed report of somebody trapped or something of that nature and, everyone does it as a crew. And you know, when you're, when you're rolling up on scene that you're immediately going to have to make a rescue or something of that nature. I could understand maybe in that situation, but I don't, I don't think that, that it, that the benefit of doing it outweighs the things that you lose, the, the getting tangled up in your, your headset, the losing the visibility. You know, I'm originally from Northeast Ohio and we get snow up there, quite a bit of snow. And I can tell you when you step out of a, a fire truck at two o'clock in the morning and there's eight or 10 inches of snow on the ground. There's a lot of obstacles that you're going to have to contend with going through that front yard to stretch that line. And if you've already got your face piece on, it just limits that your ability to do that job that much more because now not only are you, are you trudging through snow and trying to avoid things that you can't see that well because of the snow, but you're also doing it through a face piece that is probably fogged over by the time you get to the front door because you've been breathing a little heavy in it and and your, your breath is warm. I, I just, I don't see that there's a a big advantage to doing it in the back of the truck. That being said, I also think that if you are going to make the decision that you mask up in the front yard or mask up at the front door, that, you put in the sets and reps to being able to do that in a timely and effective manner because there's nothing worse than than the bystanders standing around and watching a group of firemen fumble around with their face piece trying to get it on while their house burns down.
1: So are you able to give me the opposite argument as well?
0: Sure. So the opposite argument, I think, is that you save time by putting your mask on in the back of the truck. You don't have to delay when you get on scene. You come off the truck, you've got your mask on, you've got your hood up, you've got your, your tool in your hand, you're ready to go as soon as you get there. You're, there. There's not a delay. And if you roll up to a house fire with somebody hanging out the window, you don't have to, okay, well, hold on, let me get my mask on. You know, I, I've seen many videos over the years of an engine pulling up on scene and there's somebody hanging out of a window or there's a rescue to be made. And the guys come off the truck and they just immediately go and make the rescue. They don't worry about putting their, ma- their mask on. They don't worry about doing all, all of the safety things that we really should do. And not that, that I fault those guys by any means, you know, you pull up and there's a rescue to be made. You're going to do what needs to be done. But I do think that being able to have that mask on at that time when you get there, as soon as you come off the truck, it's that way you're not caught behind the ball if there's a time constraint of making that rescue. And I think that's the biggest reason that people uh, would would say that masking up in the back of the truck would be more important than in in the front yard because they don't want to lose that time that it takes to do so in the front yard.
1: How would you resolve this this debate? Well,
0: I think that the, the answer in a perfect world would be that if you ride in the front seat, if you're the officer on, on the apparatus, then you sh- need to not have your mask on. I think that that clouding your, or, or obstructing your vision as you're pulling up on scene to make a good size up and everything, that really is going to hinder that. And you talking on the radio through your mask, you know, nobody can understand what you're saying. So the officer, of the of the apparatus needs to to keep his his face completely clear of obstruction until time to until it's time to go into the the structure. That being said, the guys on the back, I can see that they can have their masks on and ready to go so that when they pull up on scene, if there's something that needs to be done right then, they're already ready to go. And if there is an obstruction or something in the front yard, or something out of the ordinary that may be a hindrance to them, the officer that doesn't have his mask on, he'll be able to, to give those guys a heads up, th- those guys or girls a heads up as far as what they need to be watching out for because his vision won't be obstructed. And in a perfect world, by the time he gets his 360 done, the crew will already have the hose line stretched, and that that captain, that lieutenant, that senior man, should be experienced with getting his mask on in a timely manner, where he's not delaying the crew with making entry by having a mask up after they are already done.
1: It sounds like a reasonable compromise. So let's go on to your second possible debate: how to deploy the hose line. What are the schools of thought here?
0: Well, you know, I think that hose loads are about as as plentiful as dandelions in the summertime. I think that there's always people coming up with a new way to to load the hose or to deploy your hose line. And I think that all of them have pros and cons and, and, and advantages and disadvantages. But really, it's not even necessarily a debate topic as much as it is an acknowledgement that if we don't get out there and pull the hose off the truck and deploy it effectively and re-rack it and do it again, and re-rack it and do it again until it's muscle memory and you can get a hose off the truck and deployed and in-service ready to put water on the fire in 90 seconds or less, then you need to acknowledge that and you need to get out there and put in the, the time and the training to, to bring that time down to where it needs to be. It, much like the, the smooth bore or fog nozzle debate, I think that what hose load uh, uh, department uses comes down to a lot of personal preference, or we've always had it that way, or, or something of that nature. The hose load itself is not necessarily what's, what is the, the key topic for the debate. What's important is, can we take that hose load, deploy it, and put it in service and be ready to go? in an effective, timely manner? Or when we pull that hose off the truck, do we take two or three, sometimes five minutes flaking that that line out and chasing kinks and getting it ready to go to get it in service? I've seen several times just in my personal experience where you got the, the guy on the nozzle, he takes the nozzle in that working length and he stretches to the door and he sits down at the door and gets starts getting ready, and the guy uh, operating the truck just is, you know, waiting to give him water. And the, the guy in the middle is running back and forth trying to chase all these kinks and get everything ready to go. If if that's the issue you're facing, then you need to figure out how we're going to resolve that. Are, are you, are you going to be responsible? For Is the nozzle man going to be responsible for the nozzle in the first 50 feet and then the engineer is responsible for the first 50 feet off the truck and the backup man is responsible in the middle? Or do you have another way to to divide that out? But whatever the solution is, the the way you come to that is by going out and pulling the hose off the truck and stretching the line and then breaking it down and re-racking it it and doing it again and doing it again and doing it again. I know that when it's hot and sticky out and it's miserable weather, nobody wants to go out and just stretch a line off the truck and then re-rack it and pull it again and, and do it over and over again. But the only way to improve the outcome is to train on it.
1: So is there a best way to deploy the hose line or are they all about equal given the amount of training you do on them?
0: I think that they would all be about equal for each circumstance. You know, I think that every fire department, every scene is a little bit different. Every emergency response we go to is a little bit different. And so you can't necessarily say that this is the way to do it every time. Every time you go in, something's a little bit different. It's not a necessarily a black and white world it's more of a of a gray but if you if your department says okay we're going to use the minuteman hose load that means that you and your crew had better know how to deploy a minuteman hose load in the, an effective amount of time and if you can't if you're finding that that when you're responding to calls and and it's a fire and you go to pull this line off and it takes two or three minutes or, or however long you deem to be an unnecessary amount of time, then you need to get out there and do the training and get that, get that time down. I don't think that it's necessarily this hose load is better or this way to deploy it is better than that way. I think they all have advantages and disadvantages, but the, the biggest debate I guess would be, are we willing to put that time in for training because if you say, hey, guys, we're going to go outside and we're going to pull the hose load off off and brew racket, we're going to do that 15 times.
1: They're going to groan.
0: They're going to groan and grumble. Why do we need to do this? We all know how to pull a hose line. This is basic firefighter knowledge. We learned this in rookie school. But in, in my experience, when you put a stopwatch to it, and you really see how long it takes to deploy that hose load and get water flowing. It really tends to, to wake some people up and say, wow, I, I didn't realize that it took us three and a half minutes from the time the air brakes were set before we were ready for water. That's that's a, a tremendous amount of time, especially if there if there's a, a possible victim. But even just for personal property, if we're you know, just going in to put a put the fire out and save someone's possessions three and a half minutes of standing in the front yard and watching your house burn down while the fire department is trying to figure out how to get water out of the truck is an eternity.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. All right. The third and final topic is one that a lot of firefighters aren't going to give a whole lot of thought. What happens during rehab and recovery? How is that controversial?
0: I don't know that what happens in rehab is controversial. I think that what is controversial is do i need to go to rehab do do i need to when i come out of a fire to get and go to get a fresh bottle do i need to take a few minutes and have the paramedics check me out check my heart rate check my blood pressure see what my pulse ox is you know when when i started in the fire service back in 2002 i learned pretty pretty early on that about a hundred firefighters were dying every year in the line of duty. Here we are, twenty years later, and about a hundred firefighters are dying every year in the line of duty. The difference in, in what I've seen, though, is that back then we had maybe thirty or forty guys dying in a fire, and and, and sixty or seventy guys dying from other things, and, and you know whether it be a car accident or a heart attack or whatever. Now, if you go on to the NIOSH website and you look at firefighter fatalities, you have to actually search to try to find a firefighter that has died in a fire, it, you know, actually having something catastrophic go wrong while they were in a fire that, that they do happen. And, and, and I, we, we thank those, those, those people for their sacrifice every day, but the majority of those 100 firefighters that we're losing every year, we're losing to heart attacks. We're losing to sudden cardiac events that are happening within the first 24 hours after going on a call or after responding to a fire. We, as a fire service, need to start taking our health more seriously. And I'm just as guilty of that as, as anyone else, but... When we come out of a fire, we need to take the time to go get checked out, to let our body recover, to rehydrate, and to make sure that we are okay. And if that means that we have to call another two or three stations or two or three departments in for mutual aid to help us with that fire, then that's what that means. I would much rather have guys coming to my help out at my fire than coming to help out at my funeral.
1: Do you find that it's still an attitude among some firefighters that you're weak if you go to rehab? If you don't just jump up, put on a new bottle and run back inside you're weak.
0: I I, I don't know necessarily if it, if it's uh that peep, other other firefighters would think that, but I think that it's an internal thought that happens to a lot of people. Nobody wants to be thought of as the the, the person that had to come out and go right to rehab or, or had to come out and take a break. Everybody wants to – we want to get in there and do our job. We love what we do, and and we don't ever want to miss the chance to fight the fire, to do the, the things that we train to do. So when we come out, if one person – if the whole crew doesn't go to rehab, then – I think that one person would second guess themselves to say, should I go to rehab because the rest of my crew's not going, well, if they don't need to go, then I don't need to go. Even if they don't feel well, or even if they know they are spent, that they internally will think, well, I don't want to be thought of as, as the the weak guy or, or, or the the person that, that can't do the job. So I, I think that that's, one more reason that when you come out, you go to rehab as a crew, your, your whole crew just comes out, goes over and and nobody's saying it has to be a a 30 or 40 minute, you know, adventure to, to the ambulance, Hmm. but come out, get your vitals checked, get you, get you a bottle of water, get you a Gatorade, just take a couple seconds and rehydrate, replenish the the things you've lost and, and be ready to go back at it. But if there is something going on if your heart rate's crazy high or your blood pressure's high or whatever the case may be, wouldn't you rather catch it then than versus going back in and have something really bad happen and now you're inside and you're having chest pain. Now you're inside and you're short of breath or you're dizzy or whatever the case may be because now you have potentially become a mayday situation and what could have been addressed Sitting in, in the air conditioned ambulance is now having to be addressed by a RIP crew coming in to get you out, or by you having to call a Mayday, or whatever the situation would be.
1: It's a good point. Now, here's the most important question of all How do you bring up these topics without sounding like you're a know it all who just got back from FDIC with a bunch of new and better ideas? <laughs>
0: That is a fantastic question, Scott. I have had to learn that exact thing over my, my, my years of, of talking about these kind of things and learning about these kind of things. Being a, uh, being a paramedic and, and bringing that knowledge into the fire department, I have struggled with people thinking that I'm just trying to be the, the, the para-god or, or the, the know-it-all from the EMS side of things being passionate about the fire service, being passionate about the things that I know or that I've learned and that I want other people to know and learn. It really, it it can come off as you being a know-it-all or you being somebody that, that just got back from FDIC. I think that the best way to bring these things up is rather than saying something like, well, I think we should do this, would be to bring it up in a, in a conversational aspect, not even when you're planning on doing any training on it, bring it up. When you, you know, you get back from a call and you say, Hey, did anybody else think that, 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 uh, how long it took us to, to get that hose off the truck was, was crazy today. We, we need to, we need to think about how we're doing that. See, see if there's something that we can do to, to make that better. I, I have always found in my experience that, If it's something that I want to bring up and train on, that if I can show my own need for that training, that it makes it less, it makes it appear less likely that I am trying to be a know-it-all or that I'm trying to say that my ideas are the best ideas or, or, or something of that nature.
1: Well, because you're saying that you need the help too, you're not saying you people need to do it this way.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I always will, you know, I try to admit my shortcomings right off the bat when it comes to something that that we're going to train on. I try to tell people or or lead with, now, this is why I struggle with this topic. You may be very good at that aspect of it, but this is where I struggle with it. So I I try to to always make sure that the people that that I'm talking to or if I'm doing it, if I'm, you know, running a training or something of that nature, that that the people that, that are in that, that training know that I am not the end all be all to, to the fire service I struggle with things just like everybody else does what, what I'm really really good at you might not be that great at but what I'm absolutely horrible at and I dread having to do may be the, th- the, the thing that you are fantastic at and so we need to remember that when we go into trainings that if somebody seems like they know what they're talking about or seems like they're a, a know-it-all, it may just be that they're just really passionate about that topic. And give them a listen. If they, if they don't know what they're talking about, teach them why, they're, why what they're doing isn't the best way to do it. But if they know what they're talking about and, and they're passionate about it, give them a listen. You might learn something.
1: And we'll leave it there. Phil Clark, thanks for talking with me today on Code 3.
0: Well, thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you and hearing more of your podcasts to come.
1: And the link to Phil's article can be found on our website at code3.com issues. If you have an opinion on anything Phil discussed, I'd like to hear it. Or you may have your own pet peeves that you wish were addressed. Either send me an email, or even better, Record a voice memo on your phone and attach it to the email. Either way, send them to scott at code3podcast.com. Of course, you can also leave comments on the website in the comment section of the page. Once again, that's code3podcast.com slash issues. Alright, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll be here. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe.
0: To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.